Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Last week, as we began the new year, 2020, we started a new book, 1 Corinthians. And we just introduced who Paul was or is, as well as his companion Sosthenes, as he introduces himself and introduces the book, sends a typical greeting of the time, adjusted a little bit, as we see in the various epistles uh, by the writers of the New Testament. And we've come this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, and I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 is our passage for this morning. As we continue looking at this greeting that seems like a typical greeting, seems almost mundane, we see it in almost every epistle, but I assure you is packed with theology and doctrine. Verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're introduced here to the recipient of Paul's letter, the believers who belong to the church in Corinth. Corinth is a city. And it's located in southern Greece, 45 miles west of Athens, and at that time was part of the Roman province known as Achaia. Its history is kind of interesting. We won't go into a lot of details, but Corinth was destroyed by the Roman general Mummius in 146 B.C. It wasn't until about 100 years later that the city of Corinth was restored by the infamous Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. Well, you jump ahead about 100 years later at the time that Paul wrote this epistle to the church that was now there. Corinth, over that time, had grown to become a very wealthy, very influential, very rich, but very corrupt and immoral city. In fact, at that time, the city of Corinth was so vile that there was a common phrase in the area which was to Corinthianize. This emerged in reference to the gross immoralities practiced in Corinth. And so it was kind of like a a slang word where if someone was doing something really gross and immoral, you would use that phrase like, oh, don't Corinthianize. Why are you doing that? Why are you Corinthianizing? This was in reference to all of the grossness in that city that it was known for, But specifically, we see that historically in the worship of Aphrodite or Venus, the goddess of love. That uh, temple there to Aphrodite had uh, multiple priestesses, which basically served as prostitutes. And so men, in the name of worshiping Aphrodite, would come and do what prostitutes do with those women who were all in the name of worship. Now, the city of Corinth had two harbors. 
And if you know anything about trade and if you understand why San Francisco and New York City are are such powerful cities in our country, it's because of access to trade through water. This city, Corinth, had two harbors, making a very significant trade city for most of Greece, but also for much of the entire Mediterranean region. And so you get an understanding of not only the importance of this city, but in essence, by virtue of that fact, the importance of the testimony and witness of the church there. In addition to all of this, Corinth was also the host of the Isthmian Games, which were rivaled in popularity only by the Olympian Games. And it was hosted in Corinth, which, of course, increased its popularity even more. Indicative of the success of this city at this time was the presence of schools of both rhetoric and philosophy, which, among other things, lent to Corinth's flashy imitation of the city of Athens. On a spiritual level, Paul's work in Corinth is recorded for us in Acts chapter 18, right starting in verse 1, where he founded the church on his second missionary journey. And since that time that the church was planted uh, by Paul, there grew divisions and other sins in the church that Paul addresses in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And naturally, as we study through 1st Corinthians, we're going to see a lot of these uh, sins and uh, immoralities within the church practiced by believers that Paul is addressing, Paul is confronting. Not to excuse it, but you have to understand that this was the early church. And so a lot of the things they're doing would just seem absolutely Uh, just unfathomable within a church to us today, but that's because we're standing on the shoulders of 2,000 years of churches uh, throughout the ages. This was one of the first. They were just learning. They didn't even have uh, the majority of the New Testament at that time. And again, I'm not excusing their sin, but you understand why though they were doing these things, Paul, as we'll see in a few moments, still refers to them as true Christians. Well, There were, uh, basically what had happened is that the believers had a difficult time breaking with the sin and the worldliness of the society and the culture around them, not unlike the American church today. For them in particular, the Corinthian church, this resulted in factions and general spiritual immaturity, which makes sense. On the one hand, and we'll look at this later as we get further along in 1 Corinthians, there were factions, there was arrogance about uh, who their discipler was or who they were associating with, and you understand because the apostles were still there. And you do see this to a certain degree, not to that extent today when someone says, oh, I'm I'm all about John MacArthur or I'm all about R.C. Sproul or I'm all about John Piper. You don't see it to the degree that the Corinthian church did, but you can understand that the apostles were still alive and they were interacting with them. They were sending them letters. And so naturally it could become a source of, of pride to say like, oh, no, I'm buddies with Paul. I follow him. And no, I'm with this guy or I'm with that guy. And when you talk about spiritual immaturity, of course, whenever the secular society, in terms of of their sin and their views uh, that disagree with the Scriptures, when those infiltrate the thinking of Christians, then naturally the, the, the church cannot grow. It's going to remain immature because its individual members are immature. 
despite all of this, Paul describes the church at Corinth as a true church of God. And naturally, its members, the Corinthian believers, as true believers. And we will see this not only as we unpack the book verse by verse, but even this morning as we continue studying Paul's greeting to the Corinthians. And as we do that, we will receive not only information about this specific church at Corinth 2,000 years ago, but also about all Christian churches in general, as I present to you this morning five classifications of the true church. Five classifications or designations of the true church. What is a true church? Why can you be called a true church? In other words, why can you be called a true believer, a follower of Christ? The first classification of the true church is that the true church belongs to God. The true church belongs to God. I'm going to pick apart verse 2, section by section, phrase by phrase. And we get this from the first phrase and where he, he writes, To the church of God, which is at Corinth. We know who he was addressing. This letter was hand-delivered as they were during that time. And so obviously he's sending his letter and writing his letter to a Christian church. Why write the church of God at Corinth? It, it, it's obvious, right? If I, if I was going to a meeting uh, that I had set weeks in advance with Josh, I don't show up there and go, hey, Josh, husband of Irish, why specify that? I mean, that'd be different if I was talking about him in general to someone else, and there's a lot of Joshes. Which Josh do you mean? But I'm there with him, specifically addressing him. And we will see there is a profound theological truth and a point that he's trying to make before he goes into an entire long letter of rebuking them by calling them the church of God. He's simply emphasizing that the church belongs to God. You say, well, that's obvious. Well, the church does not belong to any individual. It does not belong to any group. And again, you can see the significance of specifying that when he could have easily, were he a different type of man, Paul, just said, this is my church. You follow me rather than God. He's an apostle. He established the church. He's penning Scripture. But the church, the local church, any local church, does not belong to any individual or group, not even if that individual is an apostle. And we're not talking about a building or a name. Right? We're not saying that that building belongs to God or that name, that trademarked name belongs to God. The church is the people of God. The church is not a building. The church is not a place. If the church was just a building, we'd be in serious confusion and a, lo- a big problem because then our church also happens to be a secular high school. It's very strange, right? And you know this as true believers. Yes, we refer to the church because it's easier to refer to that church located at this address. But ultimately, on a spiritual level, when we're talking about the church, when we say the church is the body of Christ, it's not a bunch of brick and mortar and wood that's scattered all over the world. We're talking about the people of God, the followers of Jesus Christ. And throughout this, this is what he's talking about this morning. And so the church belongs to God. The people belong to God. 
And the local church is a particular group of people in a specific place, like Corinth or Burlingame, that belongs to the larger body of believers found worldwide. And so this applies, everything we're going to say this morning applies to all believers, but understand in the context, he is addressing a specific local church. And so what we're looking at this morning applies to all true churches, all local churches. Now, living out this principle that the church belongs to God and not anyone else goes beyond just avoiding certain terminology. And I understand Uh, our desire to do that as believers. We want to be safe. We don't want to be misleading. And so we hear something like this and we say, well, we need to stop saying, oh, that's Roger's church or that's that's Agnes's church or whatever it may be, right? Look, there's nothing wrong with that. It's fine to say to someone from another church, oh, I go to that church that Ray goes to, Ray's church. They understand you're not saying that Ray owns the church. It's just a way to specify this church, if they're not familiar with the name of the church. The problem goes deeper when you start behaving or thinking that an individual or group owns or controls the church. I don't think any true believer will say anyone owns the church in terms of the people. But in so many churches, there is a danger that there are certain people that everyone defers to outside of the biblical roles of pastors, elders, and deacons that they refer to, and it skews the church. It messes up the church. For example, sometimes in a lot of churches, it's the big donors. They're not elders. They're not deacons. But if you offend them and they stop giving, the church is done because they give 50%, 60%, 90% of the budget. And so unbiblically, there are people who defer to the big donors. No one would say that the church belongs to this guy, but in decision-making, even in elders' meetings, it becomes clear who runs the show because they will only do what is okay with him, and it becomes not about honoring God, it becomes about the fear of losing finances. Maybe it's not a big donor. It could be someone who's just very vocal or easily offended. I've been in meetings with church leadership where people have said, well, uh, yeah, that's probably best for the church, but we really don't want to offend this individual. Obviously, this would be in, in smaller churches where everyone is more influenced by everyone else. It can be a pastor. It can be an elder who has forgotten his true calling to serve the people, gets cocky, gets proud, gets thin-skinned, and all of a sudden is controlling the church in a way that he's more like a king than a servant. And you could probably think of other situations you've heard of where you go to a church and obviously one person is in charge who shouldn't be in charge. Regardless, Paul begins with a very important distinction. You, us as a church, but you as an individual believer are the church of God. And when you go on and see all that the Corinthians are struggling with, you will see very well why this reminder is so important to them and perhaps to us as well. We'll talk about this more, but even on the individual level. 
not just on the policy doctrine level, not just on the Sunday morning organization as Grace Church of the Bay Area level. You as a church of God on an individual level, you don't belong to yourself either. You don't belong to your boss. You don't belong to the police. You don't belong to the United States of America. You belong to God. And that should influence every decision you make. Classification number two of the true church of God The true church is separated for God. Separated for God. I find this in the phrase, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. The word sanctify means to consecrate. The word consecrate consecrate means to separate for holy use, for a sacred purpose. Uh, You see this a lot in the Old Testament. Different uh, items within the temple were consecrated to the Lord. So you couldn't just come in from the field and go grab that goblet and drink out of it. It was consecrated for a holy, sacred use in the worship of God in the temple. We now are those vessels that were once in the temple. Individuals, human beings who have been set apart, consecrated, sanctified to God in Jesus Christ. In other words, as Christians, we have been set apart to Jesus Christ from all that is worldly and profane. This isn't just that we are set apart as a group. We still act like that rest of the group, but we just happen to serve God. No, we have been separated completely down to the very core of our souls from all that is worldly, all that is profane. This happens by virtue of our faith in Christ and our union with Him. And as we saw with Paul's dramatic salvation story last week, we are not set apart, chosen by God, because God looked down and deemed us worthy. We are not consecrated because we, on our own merit, our own actions, our holy thinking, we're halfway there already. No, 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 we were so far. We were so, so far. And so this set apart is purely by God's grace. It is purely His will. It's purely for His good pleasure and has nothing to do with how well you perform before that day or that time. In fact, the Scriptures are very clear that you didn't even have a chance to be a, quote, good person before God called you because He called you before you existed, before the beginning of time, before even creation. It is completely the choice and will of God despite our sinfulness and our innate proclivity to reject Him. He chose us. And this is closely connected to our third classification, and so I want to go right into that. Our third classification of the true church is called by God. Called by God. We saw separated for God, now called by God. He writes, saints by calling. Now this is interesting. Because we just saw that we are sanctified in Christ, and now we are called saints. The word sanctified in our last point is a derivative of the Greek word which means holy or holy one. The word saints here is that word holy. And so sanctified in the Greek is a derivative of this word saints which literally means holy or holy ones. And if you have the NIV, it says holy, not saints. These two obviously work together. 
Now, the idea of a holy person or a saint does not have any at all of the concept of the Catholic version of sainthood. Rather, the Bible is clear that all Christians are called saints. And that makes sense when you understand the Greek word just means holy or holy one. And this encompasses our first two points. Saints are those who are set apart to God and belong to Him. Both sanctified or being sanctified and holiness speak of our position in Christ. Okay? That's very important. Our position in Christ. In other words, because of the gospel truth and our acceptance of it, Christians are viewed by God as holy and righteous. We have that title, sanctified, holy, saints. We are viewed by God because of the blood of His Son as those in the category with the nameplate on our desks that says holy, sanctified, called by God, that is our position, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's our practice. It doesn't mean we automatically act this way. We know, for example, that the Corinthian believers were far from behaving in holiness or acting saintly. In the same way, though, we are called by God as though who, those who are set apart and are positionally holy, we can easily act different or differently than our calling and our position in God's kingdom. In fact, it is our very nature to behave contrary to our calling for the simple fact that we are sinners. Even as believers, you understand if you just do nothing, if you do not discipline your mind, if you do not meditate on Scripture, if you do not pursue holy living, you are like someone who is floating in a rushing river. You will naturally be swept away into sin. It takes effort. It takes passion. It takes discipline. It takes an understanding of God's Word. You can think of it this way in regards to our position versus our practice. Kings don't always act kingly. In fact, if you study world history, many kings acted far differently than the fairy tales we tell our young children. Presidents don't always act presidentially. I think over the past few decades, we don't even know what that means anymore. But you know generally what that means when you say presidential, right? I think there's an airline that has a presidential class, right, in their higher tier uh, membership thing, their mileage plus or whatever it is. Because we understand that that means acting dignified. Yet, a king who does not act kingly, a president who does not act presidentially, still holds the position and title of king and president, though they're not acting like it. And in the same way, we are, or we have rather, the title of saints. We have the position of sanctified, but you and I know very well that we don't always act like it. And so, 
I want you to be very clear in your own mind that there is a huge difference between who you are positionally and who you choose to be practically. Don't ever think it is enough just to be saved. There is an entire body of work from the lips of the Holy Spirit Himself that demands our behavior be holy, including our thought life and demeanor, demands that our behavior represent who we are positionally. Like the Corinthians, we are surrounded by a society and a culture that focuses on things like personal comfort, pleasure, reputation, and money, and money. And money, 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 and money. Because we're told the lie, well, maybe it's true in the secular world, if you want those things, more money. You want comfort, more money. You want someone to love you, more money. You want physical pleasure, more money. Money buys it all. And so, there is that temptation we have there because of the society around us. We seek these things. And so... We're pulled by our position in Christ, uh, but what our flesh desires. Would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where John tells us, lists for us, the three besetting sins of the world. He classifies all the sins of the world into three classifications, three main sins. 1 John 2, 16 towards the end of your Bibles. Verse 16 of 1 John chapter 2. He says, and and if you are familiar with 1 John, you know he makes a distinction between the world and God. Right? The love of the world versus the love of God. And so when he talks about the world here, he's not talking about the physical world. He's talking about the the secular mindset, the, the, the the depraved mind. So he says in verse 16, For all that is in the world, and here they are, the lust of the flesh, number one, the lust of the eyes, number two, and the boastful pride of life, number three, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And I think he makes a great distinction here. Look, we know that Satan has his say, right? The world system. But he doesn't say it's from Satan. It says it's from the world. You don't need to have a personal experience with Satan or the demons to be influenced by these things. Flesh, eyes, pride. Lust, lust, pride. The lust of the flesh speaks of that which feels good, right? The, the, the things that we, we physically feel. Of course, that's sexual sin, but it also are other sins that affect the physical body, intoxication, drugs, things like that. There's the lust of the eyes, the things that we see and we desire, that, that, that our flesh desires, material possessions, wealth, the opposite sex, the same sex, whatever it may be. And you can see how these can lead to the lust of the flesh. If you have the lust of the eyes, it's because you want to fulfill the flesh. And then the boastful pride of life. This is the kind of pride that we are talking about when we just say pride. Bragging, fear of man, the the pursuit of reputation, the fear of man, fame. These are so dangerous 
Because going back to the context of 1 Corinthians, behold your finger in 1 John 2, we can easily practice these things despite who we are positionally before God. And I think it helps to memorize and know 1 John 2.16. It's even more helpful to know the context. Let me read for you 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. See what he attributes these sins to. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. What does the sinful lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh come from? You're not lusting sinfully over riches in heaven. You're lusting over the things of the world, that the things that the world provides. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Scary. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In other words, if you are consumed by these three sins, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? Because he stopped loving you? No, because you're not a believer. If you love the world, if you are consumed by the world, it is clear that you do not have the Father. And verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lusts but the one who does the will of God lives forever. We all struggle with one of these three sins in some way. So I'm not saying if you find yourself being proud, if you find yourself you know, vying for that management position or you're lusting after the opposite sex, someone who's not your spouse, that all of a sudden the love of the Father is not in you. We are talking about characterization. If this is all that you are, if this is the habitual pattern of your life, that you love the world, then obviously the love of the Father is not in you because you only have can love one or the other. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians reminds us that we are God's holy people. And one of the best motivations to avoid sin is to remember your position in Jesus Christ. I'm going to say this again because it's so important. One of the best motivations to avoid sin is to remember your position in Jesus Christ. Not only that it's going to destroy your family, not only that it's going to hurt your spouse, not only that it's going to hurt your reputation or make you lose your job, it is your position in Christ that should motivate you to holiness. Not just the practical ramifications of getting healthier if I stop drinking or, or if I stop looking at this online that will make my relationship with my girlfriend better. Those are important, but they're peripheral. Your position in Christ, in other words, who you are in the eyes of the only one that matters, God. You, Christian. This is what we're saying. That you are a holy, sanctified saint of God. So act like it. This is who you are. Act like it. It's us picking up that general who's scared because a few bombs blew up and say, get your act together. You're our general. Lead us. Act like it. King, stop hoarding all of the food while your your people go hungry. You are a king. Act like it. You are a holy child of God. Act like it. Your calling 
is not just to be a Christian. It is not just to tell people you are a Christian. Your calling is to live in a way that reflects the status that Jesus died for. You are called by God. Classification of the true church number four. Associates in God. Associates in God. The end of verse 2, he says to the Corinthians, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul reminds the Corinthians that there are other Christians who have also called on the name of Jesus. We will see that one of the uh, struggles, can we put it that way, of the Corinthians is they were getting very arrogant even towards one another within the church. They were getting cocky and proud. And so Paul graciously reminds them, you are not it. You are not the height of Christianity. You are not the only church. There are many others in this world who have committed themselves in trust to the Lord. In other words, the church of God extends beyond the city limits of Corinth. And another way to look at it is that Burlingame, or the United States for that matter, is not the center of God's plan for the world, but simply a part of that plan. And there are two warnings from either end of this spectrum. We cannot, on the one hand, be so consumed with what's going on in the rest of the world, whether we're consumed with all the, uh, all the good things in our minds that they have or all the things they struggle with, that we neglect God's sovereign placement of our lives here, where you are today. You've heard the phrase, wherever you are, be all there. There are things I want to do. There are things that I long for. I used to live in Europe. You think I don't have times where I don't long for that? Fresh bread, fresh produce every day. Dirt in traffic? No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, but I'm here. How, how would you feel if every day is, every Sunday, well, you know in Albania, you know in Albania, I wish you guys were like Albanians. You'd be like, uh, does he know where he's living right now? Does he know? We're not speaking Albanian. I greeted him in English earlier. You should know. Right. Wherever you are, be all there, even with my kids. Of course there are things I want to do, but if I'm with my kids, wherever you are, be all there. Maybe the Lord has plans for missionary work. Maybe the Lord has plans for you to live in another place, but you're not there yet. You're here right now. So wherever you are, U.S., Burlingame, Bay Area, be all there. On the other hand, don't be so focused on our immediate area that you forget the vastness of God's reach and people He is using all over the world. And these people, by the way, should they happen to be vocationally serving the Lord in other countries, they could use your help through prayer encouragement and financial support. All believers are those who have called on the name of the Lord. And as Paul writes, he is both their Lord and ours. What does it mean to call upon the Lord? Simply to commit your life to the Lord. To be bound in fellowship to Him and all of His children. And for the Corinthians, to distinguish themselves, even sever themselves, from those who insist that Caesar is the Lord of the world. 
See, during that time, one of the sources of persecution is that Christians would not worship Caesar. They would not consider him the Lord of the world. And we see that in our lives. There is so much around us, not necessarily uh, conventional idolatry, especially in this area. In other words, uh, our battle in the Bay Area, and I dare say most of the United States, is not people who reject the gospel because they worship another false god. It's because they worship something else that's not a traditional god, like Buddha or Allah or whatever it may be. It's themselves. It's these things that we're talking about. It's money. It's reputation. It's all of that. And this last point really speaks to what I referenced earlier from 1 John. Because by virtue of who we are, we are separate from those who would call Caesar or money or personal gain the Lord of this world. Who was it that once said, you cannot serve two masters? It's a good a good one. Because Jesus said you will either love the one and hate the other or vice versa. You can't do it. And so whether it's Aphrodite or Caesar or money or comfort or whatever it may be, you cannot serve two masters. Regardless, the point is that we are all part of a larger body of Christ who are called to be distinct and different than the world. And so we've seen four of our five classifications of the true church. The true church belongs to God, is separated for God, is called by God, associates in God, and finally, in verse 3, is blessed through God. The true church is blessed through God. 1 Corinthians 1.3, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, as you know, speaks of the unmerited favor of God. It is something that He has given you that is wonderful and good and beautiful that you did not earn in any way, shape, or form. The peace, there's two types of peace that is spoken of in uh, Scripture in the Greek. It's the same two uses we would use in English today. Peace as in we are no longer at war, right? We have that, peace with God. But there's also peace as in like I'm in a spa, it's so peaceful. And that second use, not so much the spa aspect of it, but the peace, the feeling of peace is what he's talking about here. May you have this peace in the midst of persecution, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of, uh, of difficulties and challenges within the church. May you have the peace of God. This is the peace of God that is spoken of in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7, right? The peace of God that surpasses all comprehension in Christ Jesus. The lack of trouble or fear is another uh, description of this kind of peace. Jesus talks about that in John fourteen twenty seven. that the peace that he can give us is the lack of trouble and fear. Now understand that when he says grace and peace, regardless of who may use it or how you have heard it, this final greeting only applies to the true church. It only applies to Christians because it speaks of the types of blessings that God only bestows on believers and the type of blessings that only God can bestow, period. And thus, 
closes Paul's greeting, which also serves as a reminder to the Corinthians before pages of rebuke. Because this is the foundation. This is the foundation of who they are. This is the foundation of why he says what he says, not just to correct their sinful thinking and behavior, but also to explain why he even cares. Couldn't care less, right? It's like you see that kid in the store. Not my kid. Let him, you know, parents want to parent that way. Let him parent that way. Not my kid. But for believers, it's different. We care. We're concerned. Because it's not just that we're, we, we, we desire other people's joy. We definitely do, but that's not it. More importantly, we desire God to be glorified through their lives. And God is most glorified in those people's lives when they are pursuing holiness, when they are practicing their position. And so remember, although some of this, if not all of it, is very basic, they're powerful and profound reminders that we need to daily remind ourselves of, of our position in Christ. In fact, if you go to small group or receive the small group questions, one of them this, this week is going to be, how can you daily remind yourself of your position in Christ so that you will practice it more to the glory of God? We need to remember this. This goes back to uh, what Bridges says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. And so five classifications of the true church. You, Christian, belong to God and nobody else. You, Christian, are separated for God. You are called by God. You associate with other believers in God. And my friends, you are blessed. Oh, ever blessed. So blessed. More than you recognize by God, through God. And I think all of us who are believers this morning would say, Amen, that is true, hallelujah, such an encouragement, so true. This gets me up in this morning, this gets me to repent, this gets me to live the way I, uh, the God wants me to live and then desire and long for a future glory and eternity with Him. And so if you agree, which I know you do, you have to ask yourself. You have to ask yourself, child of God, why? Why? Do you find it so hard to live like a child of God when you so easily live like a worshiper of anything else? Most commonly, probably yourself, though you wouldn't say that. Why? If these are all true, is it so easy to let work consume you And yet, at that work, it is a daily battle to live as a light and to live in holiness. Why? Why is it so hard, or rather, why is it so easy to adore your spouse, yet so hard to give the same time and attention to the one who gave you that spouse? I could say the same thing about your children. Not your children doing that, but why Can you give so much adoration to your children, but not the God who gave you those children? Why do you lose sleep over how to make more money, but not over your sin? Ironically, if that is the case, one of your sins is your love of money. Now, why do you so readily, so easily, so comfortably 
without any challenge, without any questioning, so readily accept the shaky and precarious foundation of the ever-changing social norms of feminism, gay marriage, and sexual promiscuity, yet argue against the eternal, unchanging, solid rock foundation of God's Word. Would someone at your work Would someone in your family, would your spouse, would your children, listen to your words, watch how you behave, be able to read your thoughts and think, no doubt, this is one of those separate from us, declared holy, sanctified, a saint. I could see it in how they live. They're different. It's like they're not even in this world. It's like they don't even know what society thinks or care. It's like they don't even read the news. They're just so different. Or would they be able to see what's in your heart, not your position, but your thoughts, your practice, and then they laugh when you tell them that you are a saint in God's eyes. Walk away muttering, good luck with that. (laughs) Try harder because you look no different than me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us to be different, not just in a legalistic way, but our, our very essence has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so as we daily battle the flesh, as we daily battle the pressures of this world, we use these God-given minds and intellect to twist the truth. We're just trying to be good stewards. We're just trying to give everything we want to the kids and make them happy. Lord, help us to see the truth. Help us to see if we are idolizing ourselves, our comfort, money, job, other people through the fear of man. Help us to rejoice in the foundation we have in Jesus Christ and in our position in your eyes. Father, it is mind-blowing. Each and every one of us knows how sinful we were and how sinful we still are, and yet to know that you see us as set apart. You have set us apart yourself. You have called us. You see us as holy. And may that be the foundation for not just external, but inward-motivated, true, godly behavior, godly thinking. Help us to see in the midst of this secular world that so worships materialism, and self, how we have fallen into that trap, even if just a little. And may we slay it by your help. May we repent of it with your strength. That we might be a people who practices our position. In Jesus' name, amen.